tonight what we want to cover is really these first three, these first three boxes. So the introduction to the book, uh, the letters to the seven churches, and then the throne room of God, and then the worthy lamb takes the scroll. And so we'll get through chapter five tonight. Now, one of the things that you'll see that's not, that doesn't show up in the first five chapters is Revelation 12, one through five, which just describes when Satan through Herod tried to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. So that's why we put that at three or four BC. Revelation 22, six through 21, it's just Jesus speaking directly to John again. So we just kind of put that there in terms of the chronological timeline. And then what's not mentioned in the book of Revelation, but we believe happens between chapters three and four, and that's the revelation of the church or the rapture of the church, revelation of the church, the rapture of the church. Our whole goal of this study is to put it in bite-sized chunks so that we can get the, the general flow of the book. And sometimes you get so down into the weeds, you, you forget what was in chapter two by the time you get to chapter seven. And so that's, we're going to try to do the opposite of that, try to keep the flow moving really good. So the first thing we want to see just in verse one is that God the Father gave this revelation to Jesus Christ for the purpose of showing his bondservants what must shortly take place. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, to, gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. And so one of the things that we want to make sure that we communicate and really emphasize with the book of Revelation is that it can be understood. That's by definition, revelation is to reveal, to uncover. And so it wasn't God's intention to communicate something. It it was God's intention to to communicate something, not to conceal something. And so just at the outset of the book, we want to take that posture toward the book because it it can be a very intimidating book for a lot of people. And and, and for many people, they say, well, I'm just not even going to study it. I can't understand it. But it wasn't designed to be concealed. It's designed to be understood. And so this word revelation means to reveal an uncovering or an unveiling. Uh, The word to show, again, just to kind of emphasize this point, means to point out, to present to the sight, to cause to see. Okay, so the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants. Again, just that emphasis that he wants us to understand. And we looked at this last week in our overview of the book, but one of the things we want to keep in mind and not lose sight of is that God wants to reveal Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the purpose of the revelation. If, if we don't come away with anything else, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we went through that list where Jesus Christ is Lord of the churches. He's Lord of the earth. He's Lord of all eternity. And we just kind of went through that list, tracing that thought through the book of Revelation. So we don't want to get distracted by all the sevens, the 144, the mark of the beast. You know, I mean, these are all interesting things, but if we, we want to keep this main theme that he's trying to reveal that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is going to win at the end. And so that's the whole point. Verse three, John's message to his audience. The one is this, the one who reads, those who hear and keep uh, the words of this prophecy. Those things which are written in it are blessed. So reads, hear, and keep are blessed. You know, as far as books of the Bible, this is the only book that specifically promises a blessing to those who who read here and apply it. Now, it's not to say that other books, you don't get blessed when you read here and apply it, but this is the only book that specifically states that that's going to happen. We see that in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. And by the way, that word keep, I'd like to do a lot more study on this word. But what I found so far is fascinating. You're going to see this word here in Revelation. You see it a lot in the Gospel of John, especially in the upper room discourse. And then you're going to see it a lot in John's letters. Don't feel bad or, or don't be shy here, but when you see the word keep... How do we typically teach that or, or how would we simplify that or translate that? What, do we, what, do we, what word do we typically say that that means? If just anybody have a guess? Okay, remember, what's the other one? Save, save. okay, save. What I hear it a lot, a lot of people will say that means obey. Okay, have you guys ever heard that? So they'll say whoever hears, let's see, what, what does he say? Whoever reads, hears, 
and keeps. And, and what does keep mean? Keep those things which are written in the book. Well, let's say that means obey. That means obey them in the book. Really interesting. It's not the word obey in the Greek. It's, a, it's another word, and it means to, to guard. It was used of a warden, like of prisoners. It means to keep your eyes fixed upon. The idea that I, I feel like this word communicates more than just obey, it's, it communicates something to the effect of you highly value it. Like you, you really keep your eye on it. It's important to you. You prioritize it. It's, you got to keep a close eye on it. And it really helps in the book of First John because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so a lot of the way that that's taught by, by lordship teachers is, well, it says here, if you love Christ, you're going to obey him. So if you don't obey him, you're probably not saved. You see how they kind of read that back. But it's got this idea of keeping your eyes fixed upon us. It's, like, it's the idea that when Jesus says something, I pay attention. Like that's important to me. And doesn't mean that you execute it every time, but it, it does remain important to you. Heed. Okay. The other thing we, we notice about this verse is that reading, hearing, and keeping are all present active participles explaining how one can be blessed, okay, or, or happy. So that's really the introduction. And then we see that John here in the next four verses just sends his greetings and says hello, basically. And so we see that this revelation that John's re, John records is for and addressed to seven churches mentioned in verse 11. We'll see those churches, but if you look down at verse 11, Jesus names them all. And then we're going to get a letter to each one of those in chapters 2 and 3. You know, before I started studying the book of Revelation, I didn't, I guess I didn't realize that this whole book was addressed to seven churches. It was, you know, this is just like any of the other epistles that we have there. It's addressed to churches to read. This is how John received the revelation, verses 9 through 11. We, we read in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so we see that John, um, we know this from, from history, uh, that he was banished to the island of Patmos during the emperor Domitian's reign, 81 to 96, sometime that, between those years for his Christian faith. Notice that John refers to himself here as the seven churches' brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. And we'll kind of look and see what that means here with the next point. But one of the things um, about John's reign, this is according to some of the writings of some of the early church fathers, that the Romans sent John as a prisoner from Ephesus where he pastored to the island of Patmos in 95 AD. That's what the, his, uh, the church fathers said. There he worked in the mines or the quarries. Patmos stood in the Aegean Sea just southwest of Ephesus. Uh, it was 10 miles long and 6 miles wide at its widest end, and it served as a penal colony for political prisoners of Rome. John remained there until shortly after the, the emperor Domitian died in AD 96. His successor, Nerva, according to church history, allowed John to return to Ephesus. Okay, so that's what we're, we're looking at uh, in exile for at least a year, if not longer, according to church history. So what does he mean here by all this? Well, John and his readers are, are brothers and companions. The word patience there, it just means remaining under, remaining under the current tribulation. And, and what's he talking about? Well, he was exiled, you know, for his, for his faith. And so there's some things going on. We're going to see as we get in the letters to the seven churches, there's some persecution going on in Asia Minor with some of these churches. They're all linked together in that as they, they have this hope for the future kingdom, the coming of Christ in mind. And so those are all things that are going on when John received the vision. And then just this comment, the biblical hope uh, has a purifying effect on how we respond to trials in our daily life. Remember that passage in 2 Peter 3, that, that looking ahead to future things should impact how we live now. Okay, just having that, that future look should, should swing back into our life and, and help us uh, prioritize and think through what we do on a daily basis. That's through verse 11. What's interesting as we, as we lead into verse 12, go to um, verse 10 before we get to verse 12. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he says, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, and then Jesus began speaking. And when we get down to verse 12, he hears his voice and he turns around to look to see who's speaking, who, who's talking, who's coming with this loud voice. 
And we see this description of Jesus Christ in verses 12 through 17. He looks a little bit different than when John saw him last ascending from the Mount of Olives. He looks a little bit different. Let's, in fact, let's read that passage uh, in full. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a white garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, and saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And so in verse 13, John says that he sees the Son of Man. Or one like the Son of Man is, is the way that he puts it. Who's identified as Jesus later. Verse 18, he's going to identify himself as the one who, who lives and was dead. And he's in the midst of these seven golden lampstands. Now, this is a reference, I believe, to Daniel 7. And so let, hold your finger there. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. It's, um, this is an interesting section here. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And he says this, I was watching in the night visions and behold, notice this next phrase, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Now, what's really interesting about Daniel seven is when he, he came to the ancient of days. So you've got one like the son of man coming to the ancient of days for referring to God, the father. And what's interesting about that is we're going to actually see that in chapter five. We're going to see him coming to the father. We're going to see that. And then verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And that's what we're going to see in the entire rest of the book of Revelation. That's all of that's coming to pass and, and going to be fulfilled. So I definitely think, although he's not quoting Daniel 7 directly, he's not, he's not putting a quote John is referencing that passage. This, this all fits with what's about to be revealed to him. This also would have drawn imagery of a priest in Israel ministering in the tabernacle or temple. This fact that one like the son of man clothed with the garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band, and then standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. This would have drawn some imagery of a priest question, isn't it comforting to know that Jesus Christ is in the midst of the churches? That's pretty comforting. And at the same time, isn't it frightening to know that Jesus Christ is in the midst of the churches? Meaning he sees everything. And so we're going to, we're going to see in the letters to the churches, he knows what's going on there. They're not pulling the wool over his eyes. He knows exactly what's happening down to their, their heart motives, but he's in the midst of the, the seven golden lampstands. And so what it does, it just shows us that Jesus is involved. He loves, he, he cares for those in his body. He's engaged. You know, he's, he's in the midst of the lampstands. And, and then we see in verse 16, he said to have, he holds seven stars in his right hand. This is always interesting, you know, trying to identify these things. This one's a little bit easier because down in verse 20, he tells us what those stars are. In fact, he tells us what the lampstands are in verse 20. We'll jump ahead real quick. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. And so that's how we get that identification made. And so now the big question is, what are, what are who are these angels? Who are these stars? These, these stars that he's holding in, the, in his hand are called angels. And so the question you have to ask is, are they angelic beings from heaven? And does each church have its own guardian angel? That's a, a lot of people will, will teach that or go to there, that they, each church has their own guardian angel. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's a guardian angel thing. So let's just kind of work, work through why that might not be the case. We do see from this passage that angels reveal the message to John. Then he writes it and he gives it to angels who then go and give it to human beings forming churches. Look back up to chapter 1, verse 1. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel 
to his servant John. So there's an angel that gives the revelation to John and then John gives it to angels to give to the churches. So that's, you see kind of, that would be kind of an odd order if that's, if it's angelic beings that we're talking about. Secondly, the other reason I don't think it's angels is most of the rebukes in chapters two and three, which are written to the churches, are second person singular, meaning that both the messenger, the angel, and those to who he's taking the letter are being rebuked. Okay, so the angel's being rebuked and the people that he's taking the letter to. So you got this, this back and forth, second singular, second plural rebukes to, to both the angel and to the the ones that he's delivering the message to. So this grammatical usage would not work with an unfallen angel. There'd be no need to rebuke an unfallen angel. So again, just a, another argument for why I don't think they're, they're angelic beings the way we typically think of angels. Who are they? Well, most likely, again, this is not something I would die on a hill about, but these angels are most likely human messengers or representatives, like, like an Epaphras, like an Epaphroditus, from each of these churches who are going to deliver their personal letter and the revelation to their individual churches. So, you know, in some way, John is able to get these, these different men representing their different churches, the letter, and then they deliver it. And so I think it's used that way. The, the question is, do we have any kind of, any kind of other use of this word for human messengers? Okay, and if we do, then, it, then I think the argument can be made, and we do in the Bible. Uh, the same word is used of human messengers or representatives in a couple different places. Here's, here's a few. Matthew 11:10 and Mark 2, uh, Mark 1, 2 of John the Baptist. Uh, Luke 7:24 is used of John the Baptist's disciples. Luke 9:52 is used of Jesus' disciples. And so let's look at, let's just look at a couple of those. Go to Matthew 11:10. Matthew eleven ten, we we know the Greek word that's translated angels angelos is the the generic definition is messenger. That's that's the generic definition. Typically, when we hear angel, we think we think heavenly being. That's what we think. But it's used here in uh, Matthew eleven ten, where it says this: For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger. There's our word angelos. I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then go over to Luke 7.24. Luke 7.24 says this. When the messengers, and there's our Greek word, angelos, right there. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And so, so there is some precedent using this word for, for human messengers. And it seems to fit with those other two points that I made that, that John got the message from an angel, delivered it to potentially human messengers who then delivered it to the churches. And then the fact that the rebukes would apply to the, this angel, this angelos, this messenger and the churches to whom they're delivering it. You could also probably make the assumption, although again, not to die on the hill, that these, these stars, these angels, these messengers that Christ is holding in his hand are the pastors of those churches. That's, that would be a logical Conclusion. So these messengers who are responsible for the spiritual welfare of the church are in the right hand of the Son of God, indicating possession, protection, and sovereign control. And I remember to this day, do you, um, do you guys know or ever heard of the guy, uh, pastor in Dallas, Robert Jeffress? He's on Fox News sometimes and things. He was actually one of my professors in that revelation course that I took at Dallas Seminary. We, we hosted at his church, everything. And I still remember when he was talking about this passage, he, he teared up because he recalled a, a memory when he was on the island of Patmos in a cave that they said John was stayed in, I guess. I don't know. And just realizing at that point that if Christ holds the stars in his hand and those are the pastors that that Christ was holding him in his hand for, for his church. And just making that connection, I still remember him. Very emotional to think about that. So definitely possible, definitely, you know, makes sense that that would be the person who, who takes the message, but we don't know that for sure. So we're not, you know, we're not standing really, we're not drawing a line in the sand on that, but that, that is definitely a possibility. In the rest of chapter one, we're going to get the purpose. We're going to get the purpose. And if you don't remember anything else about Revelation, remember verse 19 because verse 19 provides the outline for the whole book. So verse 19 provides the outline for the whole book. It reads this, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. 
Okay, and so you've got the things which he had seen, okay, and that's in his visions, uh, which is recorded in chapter 1. We've just looked at chapter 1 in an overview level, and those are the things which he had seen. We're going to look at chapters 2 and 3. These are the things which are. In other words, these are the things which are going on while John is writing this letter and recording this revelation. And then we're going to see the things which will take place after this. And that's chapters 4 through 22. And that includes the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. This is kind of the outline of the book. And so we just covered the things which you have seen. And as we get into chapters 2 and 3, we're going to cover the things which are. Okay, presently as John is writing. And then the other thing we want to notice, uh, the things which will take place after this. And it just causes you as, you, as you read through 19, the things which will take place after this, what's he talking about? Well, I believe he's talking about after, after the church age. These are the things that are going to take place after the church age. And so these are going to be the things that are covered in chapters 2 and 3. And so what it tells us is that the events that start in chapter 4 will occur after the church has been raptured. That's why we, we put the rapture in between chapters 3 and 4, kind of... As we said, I think a couple of weeks ago, it's the white space in between chapters three and three and four. It is interesting that the revelation does not talk about the rapture of the church. It's just, that is interesting, but it's obviously clearly taught as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so in terms of trying to chronologically put it where it goes, we believe again, it goes after chapter three. It's after this, after the church things that we see chapter four and on. And so chapters two and three, uh, we've got seven letters to seven churches. And, and one of the handouts that you took tonight is a chart. And so what you've got here is you've got a front and back. And it's a real quick summary of the seven churches. And they can be outlined under six headings. You've got destination. Where is it, where is it sent? You've got a description of the Lord Jesus. And, and what's interesting, we don't have time to get into the detail tonight, but each of the descriptions of Jesus Christ has a personal application to that church that he's writing to. Like it would have been a very personal aspect of the description of, of who he is, what he's done. So it's just really interesting when you have time to study those details. There's a commendation, three, except to Laodicea. There's no commendation for Laodicea. It's all correction. Number four, there's correction except for two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, there's an exhortation, and then there's a promise. You can just kind of work your way through those. You know, the church of Ephesus, the, the very first church, their works, labor, perseverance is mentioned twice. Intolerance of wicked men, testing of professing apostles, endurance, hatred of the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I mean, they had a lot of things that they were doing well. They had one correction. They had left their first love. The exhortation, remember your former position, repent and repeat your first deeds. Hear what the Spirit of God says to the seven churches. And then the promises, they will receive permission to eat of the tree of life in God's paradise. And so you could just kind of follow that chart. Um, you'll see that I stole this chart from Tom Constable from his notes. And I made a couple of additions. I just, I just added a couple things. So you'll see I put Constable's notes with minor, minor edits. This section right here, I mean, there could be a message on each church. I mean, there's, it's, there's that much there, probably even more than just one message. What I want to look at in chapters 2 and 3 is the concept of the overcomer, um, because I think that's an important topic and definitely very interesting to cover. And so, a, as you can, let's uh, just follow me really, really quickly, and we're going to answer the, the question, who are the overcomers? And so we want to consider a couple of important facts as we look at that, but before we do, Let's see. I'm going to just call on you rapid fire. Can I have seven volunteers to read something? Those are the overcoming passages. And you'll see each church has a mention of an overcomer and what they'll, what they'll receive. And so who are the overcomers? What does this mean? Well, first of all, we want to note that being an overcomer in the scriptures is always stated in a positive light. Uh, with what the victor will receive and never what he might forfeit. In other words, you might say there's never a mention of something bad happening to the believer should he fail to overcome, okay? You could, you could say that it's implied there. You could say that, okay, he who, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, but he who does not won't eat from the tree of life. You could say there's an implication of negative, but it's never specifically stated 
that there's a negative outcome. Never once, and, and this is just, we're just making some observations here, is the overcomer used with an if statement. I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading through. It wasn't if he overcomes. It's not, and we'll, we'll point out the grammar in a second, but it's not, it's not a verb. It's not a verbal action that we're talking about there. But he doesn't, never says if he overcomes. It just says to him who overcomes. To him who overcomes is when it says. So in other words, if he does not overcome, then he'll be left out of whatever's promised. Okay, so again, we're just making some observations here. So even before Christ went to the cross, John 16.33 showed that Jesus has, uh, had overcome the world. Uh, the verb is a perfect tense verb indicating a completed action with continuing results. In other words, Jesus overcame during his life and in his death. Interestingly, again, we're just making some observations. The only, only once in the New Testament are we commanded, given an imperative um, in the Greek, to be overcomers. And that's found in Romans 12.21, probably familiar with the verse, we're told to overcome evil by doing good. Just the very fact that this is commanded here proves that believers can be overcome by evil. In other words, you don't command somebody to overcome something unless they have the, the ability not to. If it's automatic, then there'd be no need for a command. But that's not even what we're talking about. I don't believe in Revelation. The term overcomer in Revelation uh, because of the way it's used, is to be understood as a positional statement, not a conditional possibility. And so what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's look at some of the, the meanings of the word and then just talk about how it's used in Revelation because it's, it's used in a unique way and it's, it's one of those things that we, we really need to take time to point out so that we feel comfortable about that. This is, this is actually one of the passages that I've had people take me to and say, see, you can lose your salvation. You know, the point to that says you can lose it, you know, because the implication is the opposite that you, especially the big one is to me is 2.11 because he says, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So what does it imply? The, the opposite. If, if it's a verbal action that you have to overcome, that implies what? Believers can't, there are believers that can be hurt by the second death. Now we, we all know what the second death is. That's the lake of fire. So that's problematic. If that's what it's teaching, then, you know, we do need to, we need to change our theology if that's what it's teaching. So we need to understand what it's teaching. That's why we're going to take some time to look at this and, and really get into the language a little bit more, just so that we understand. And we could do this a whole lot easier. I can, we can just go to a cross-reference in 1 John and let him define what he means by overcoming, which we will. But I want to show you some other stuff in the text that is also helpful in understanding it. So the verb to over, meaning to overcome is nikao. And it's where we get the, our word Nike, you know, Nike shoes. Um, it means to conquer, to prevail, to subdue, or to be victorious. Overcomer, the, the word overcomer as a feminine noun, again, Nike, Nike, meaning victor, only occurs once in the New Testament in 1 John 5, 4, where it's translated victory, uh, not victor, which is its literal meaning. We'll look at that verse in a second. Overcomer as a, as a neuter noun, nikos, occurs four times in the New Testament and literally means victory. And you'll see the four uses there. But in Revelation, we're not looking at a noun. We're looking at a participle. When you look at the participle, any, any Greek participle, well, it's an articular participle. That's important. And all that means is that you've got the typical verb. So that would mean to conquer you know, in verbal form. And our articular participle has the definite article, the, and then whatever the form is of this. It's, it changes form based on if it's present, tense, future. But it's articulated. That's the point. Because what we're going to see is that when you have an articular participle, it makes the word function as either a noun or an attributive modifying the noun. In other words, an adjective. Okay. Now, for those of you that don't like gr grammar, this may not make a lot of sense, but we'll get to the punchline here in a second. Those of you that like grammar, you pr there's probably a lot you can correct me on. So just uh, hold off until the end <laughs> here. But what that means for us there is that it's descriptive. This is a word that's descriptive, like an adjective, not prescriptive, like an imperative verb. In other words, it's not telling you what you need to do. It's describing what you are. I think to simplify it, it's not telling you to do something or it's not describing action that you need to accomplish. It's describing who this person is. It's a description of 
a, a type of person. So more simply, wherever the term overcomer is used in chapters 2 and 3, it's not a verbal imperative, but a descriptive participle, meaning the one who overcomes, or, or probably better, the overcoming one. The overcoming one. It's an adjective. It's describing somebody. So these scriptures are not telling believers they ought to overcome, but rather are making the statement that they are, present tense, overcomers. That's what we're talking about here. Now, should believers overcome evil? Yeah, that's what Romans 12, 21 says. But this is not what it's teaching, nor is it making the blessings associated with it conditional on their verbal action to overcome. Okay, so it's just describing uh, that they are overcomers. As an articular participle, the phrase he who overcomes is, tr- is translatable as the overcoming one. This is because that is what we are through Christ. And so you go to, you go to Romans 8.37, you know, we try to obviously tie, tie scripture with scripture, but Romans 8.37, very familiar verse. And it, it just says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are. Present tense indicative. That's, that's who we are. That's a descriptive of you. So even if you don't conquer in your daily life, you are described as a more than conqueror. How? Well, what does Romans eight thirty seven said? Through him. That's, that's why you're an overcomer. It's through Jesus Christ. It's not because you have learned how to behave uh, in a certain way. So it's describing who you are in Christ. And so this articular participle is a noun or attributive modifying a noun or a pronoun. And it's made from a snapshot of action. I've got an example here. I think this will help. So it describes someone in an action at a moment in time. And then that action becomes descriptive. It becomes an adjective. Here's an example. Illustration. The woman screamed hysterically at the sight of the dead person. Now look at the next sentence. The screaming woman was led away from the scene. See, see how that, this right here encapsulates a, a snapshot action. When she saw the dead person, she screamed. And now the screaming woman describes that snapshot of an action. But it's not t- she's not still screaming. Right? She, she screamed. But that was a description of, well, which woman? Oh, it's that woman, the screaming woman that said that. And so that's what we're looking at here. When did you become an overcomer? When did that action take place? When did you overcome? Well, it's the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, tetelestai. <laughs> that raises. That's right. The moment you put your faith in Christ, and from that point forward, Oh, that's, that's an overcoming one. That's an overcoming one. That's an overcoming one is, is kind of the idea represented by this attributive participle. So we are presently overcoming ones through our relationship to Jesus Christ since our faith in Christ has given us the victory. And so here's one of those things like as we're, as we're talking about Bible interpretation, how do you understand words in context? What you always want to do is, is so in Revelation 2, we come up to that first use of the word overcomer in verse 7. It says, to, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And we look at that passage and we say, what does he mean by overcomer? And so we look around that passage. Does he define it anywhere? No, we can't find it. We go outside of that passage. Does he define it anywhere else in Revelation? No, we can't find it. Does he do it in another chapter in Revelation? Nope, we can't find it. So then we say, okay, did this author write any other books? And can we, does he define it anywhere else? We'll go flip back a couple pages to 1 John chapter 5. And by God's grace, John tells us what he means by overcomer. In, in 1 John 5 verse 4. And it fits with this articular participle. And I believe it's why I used it. So 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. What is it? Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So you see that this, this whole idea of overcoming one just describes a believer. Just describes a believer. And so all of these uses of overcomer in Revelation 2 and 3, we can go back there now. They're not saying if you overcome, it, you'll notice it's, there's no if there. It's not a conditional statement. It's not saying if you overcome, I'll do these things for you. Rather, they're statements of fact designed to motivate 
the individuals and the churches to continue onwards. Designed to encourage them. Some of them are going to be facing persecution. And he's giving them this look to the future again so it might impact the way they live right now. And so it's designed to be more of an encouragement. In other words, you might say it this way. You are going to receive these things. So listen to what the Spirit is saying to you and be encouraged to persevere. The Lord held out a reminder of what would inevitably be theirs in the future in order to motivate the readers to follow him faithfully in the present. And so that is really just covering chapters 2 and 3 at a very high level. You've got the chart, but I wanted to look and dive into the overcomer a little bit. I hope that was helpful. If there's any more questions, you want to talk about it more, just we can talk more. In fact, if you want to read something more that's in more detail than what I gave you, I'd be happy to send you... I think it's a six or seven page article just detailing all of this that we put in our curriculum for DM2. So be happy to share that with you via email if you'd like that. So let's go ahead and move to chapter four. And this is really um, 4.1. We see this as an introduction of the last section of the book. And so 4.1, based on this outline given to us in in 119, the phrase, uh, the things which must take place after this, what we're going to see is we're transitioning toward things in the future, starting with chapter four, and that the events following come after the church is mentioned in chapters two and three. And so kind of pick that up in verse one. Notice, notice that first phrase, after these things I looked. And so we tie that back to, to Revelation 119, which are the things which will take place after this. Okay, we're keying off after this in 119. And then 4-1, after these things, is trying to identify where we're at in this book. And that's why in your chart here, You'll have, following Revelation 2 and 3, we'll, we'll go right into 4 and 5. That's where the after these things starts. Again, noticing that we believe the rapture of the church happens after chapter 3, before verse 4. And that's where that would fit. In this chapter, we get a description of God's throne room. It's a short chapter, but it's, it's really incredible to see this description. I mean, it's, I think for, for John, it's just kind of mind-blowing. I mean, it's, this doesn't obviously do it justice. You, and, I, and I think he did his best job to describe everything. You know, this is not something you see on a day-to-day basis. But let's look at some of the inhabitants of the throne room. The first one we want to look at is God the Father. Uh, we see him in verses 2 and 3 and 5 and 6. And what we see there is the description of God's throne, God himself. The question is, how do we know it's God the Father? Well, in 5-7, we see that the lamb comes and takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So it's somebody besides the lamb, besides Jesus, that he takes this scroll from. And so we just identify him as God the Father. Let's read verses 2 and 3. Immediately as I was in the Spirit... Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And then jumped to five. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. So this throne room is clearly indescribable in beauty. It seems as John is grasping for words. And it's this very majestic and awe-inspiring scene which is designed to prepare not only John for the upcoming judgments, but also to prepare us for what we're about to read. You know, we're, we're about to read about some pretty crazy, intense judgments. Before we start seeing all this, it's good to get a very good picture of, of the God of the universe and the fact that he's the creator, the fact that he, he is the one who has a right to do these things before we start reading about these things. And so we see God the Father um, described in the throne room. The, the second group of people we see described is a group called the 24 elders. 24 elders uh, in their description. We see them in verses 4 and 10 through 11. Let's read verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And we jump to verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Who are these guys? You know, who are these 24 elders? Well, they're definitely redeemed human beings. Okay, we're going to see that 
in chapter 5, 9 through 10. So we definitely know that they're not angels. Some people have taught that they were angels, but we know they're not angels because 5, 9 through 10 says this. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And then notice that next phrase, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation uh, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Definitely not angels. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that angels are are redeemable or or have been redeemed or that there was some uh, redeemer for angels. So that's, those are human beings that we're looking at there. The 24 elders, redeemed human beings. So the views of who they are vary. They vary a lot. I've only got three of the views. There's a lot more. This is where commentators start having a lot of fun, <laughs> getting, getting wild and crazy. So I'll try to explain why I hold the view that I do. And, and again, I'll try to present the, the other views. But option one, I'll present the ones I disagree with first. I'll try to give a little bit of the reason. Some, some people will just say the 24 elders are Old Testament saints. Okay. And the reason for that is in First Chronicles 24, David appointed 24 elders to represent the entire Levitical priesthood. Go back to First Chronicles. David appointed 24 elders. Oh, the number 24 elders that must be the same. And so that's, that's kind of the connection. That would be the connection for that. I don't see it that way. And I'll kind of explain why I don't see it that way here in a second. Option two. Uh, Some people will say it's a combination of Old Testament and New Testament saints. And so some will understand the 24 are divided into two groups of 12 each. One group represents the redeemed of the Old Testament. The other, the redeemed of the New Testament church. Okay. So again, just not a real strong scriptural argument for that. But, you know, hey, it makes sense, right? 12 plus 12 is 24. 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, so there's some, you know, potential connection there. I don't, I don't think it's a real strong connection. What I would agree with and what I would teach is option three, uh, that they're representative of the church. Others do not include the Old Testament saints at all, but, but see the 24 elders as representing the church only. And that's, again, where I would stand. And the reason, I, I think it just appears to be more probable. Let me give you a few reasons uh, that we've got in our notes. One reason it is it's likely that redeemed Israelites will not be resurrected until after the second coming of Christ and before the millennial period. So that's at the end of the tribulation. We're not here in the chronology in Revelation 4. We're not at the end of the tribulation yet. We're at the beginning of the, before the tribulation starts. Daniel 12, 2 talks about the resurrection of Old Testament saints. And I'll just read that uh, really quickly here. 12.1 12.1 kind of gives us context. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. That's talking about the great tribulation period. And then it says, and, then ma- and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so there you see these resurrection of the Old Testament saints um, there in Daniel 2. And it happens after the tribulation period at the second coming of Christ. And so that's one reason I don't think the 24 elders can include Old Testament saints or does not include Old Testament saints. Another argument is this group is in heaven immediately following uh, the, the after these things of the churches in chapters two and three. So in terms of chronology, if, if that's what the Lord is trying to show here, there's the churches, the things which are, and then after church things, we're going to have the, the glorified saints there represented by the 24 elders. There seems to be a connection, although I think that in and of itself is not a, a strong argument, but putting a few things together, I think helps. I think one of the strongest argument is this group has already been rewarded as evidenced by their white robes. And we get to Revelation 19, and just to kind of con- make that connection, Revelation 19, 7 through 8, says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife ha- has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so we see his bride there, dressed in white. It's the rewardable works that we see there. And then also 
Um, we see in verses 4 and in verses 10 and 11 in chapter 4 uh, that they're wearing crowns. And one of the unique things about the word crowns used here, it's the Greek word stephanos, which is not used of the kingly crown, but it's used of the crown of victory in games. And that's also the typical word used of rewards that believers will receive. So those are kind of the connections that we're making there on the 24 elders. And so we won't read those verses just for sake of time, but that's who we would identify as the 24 elders. And then there's one other group we mentioned in chapter 4 as part of the throne room scene of, of God, and that is these four living creatures. And we see them uh, referenced in 6 through 9. So the description of the four living creatures, uh, they're most likely angels as they're similar to angels described in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. Uh, let's read 4, 6 through 9 about their description. These are, these are some pretty wild looking guys <laughs> to say the least. But he says, before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. And then he goes on to say that the 24 elders fall down before him and him who sits on the throne and worship him. So as the angels give glory and honor in God, the 24 elders fall down and worship. So it's just this constant scene of worship in heaven of God. Just, just an incredible scene. I mean, just imagine John, you know, seeing that. You know, he's, he's back in Ephesus dealing with diatrophies. You know, like this little punk, you know, he won't let people come into the church. He's kicking people out. And then he gets into this throne room. He's like, this is awesome. This is what it's supposed to be like. It's like an old saying, what is it? To live above with saints we love, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, that is another story. <laughs> yeah. So John's getting to see these things. Real excited. For time's sake, we won't go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. So look it up. You know, it's very similar to what we're seeing here. And so we'll just identify them as, as angels. In fact, it's this very declaration of worship by the four living creatures, which prompts and spurs on the worship of the 24 elders in verse, verses 10 and 11. And then in response to the four living creatures giving honor, glory, and thanks to God, the 24 elders fall down before God and worship him. We'll bring this out too, but, but go back to verse 11 and, and notice that as the 24 elders begin to worship him along with these, the angels, notice first of all in verse 10 that they cast their crowns before the throne. They, they cast their crowns before Jesus. And if those do represent rewards like we purport, that makes sense, right? Because the only rewards that we're going to obtain at the Bema Seat is, is the ones that we did, the good works that we did, independence upon him. Those are the rewardable works. And so they're Jesus's anyways, right? And so it's, this minds this, this, this understanding that it was Jesus who did these through him, uh, through them. But then look at verse 11 and, and tell me, what is this focus of the worship? Well, verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, why is he worthy? What is that next phrase? For you created all things. You're the creator. And so he goes back to, they go back to this truth that he is the creator owner. And just remember, the creator owner has the right to do with his creation anything he wants to do. That's, that's the concept I want to draw there. There's a distinction between the creator and his creation. And he's far above his creation. And so it's interesting that they bring this up because what we're about to see in chapter six, if we don't have that firmly rooted in our thinking as, as truth, we might feel like, why is God being so mad? Like, why is he being so angry? How, why is he treating these people this way? Like, this isn't fair. We understand he's the creator owner. He has a right to do whatever he wants. And they, they acknowledge that and recognize that in his throne room. And then we move on to chapter five. And what we find in chapter five introduction of this this concept of a scroll let's read five one through four to set this the backdrop he says and i saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals so we've got a scroll 
And it's written on the inside as you roll it out. It's on the inside and it's written on the back. That's what we're looking at so far. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. So it brings up the question, what was this scroll? What is this scroll? And this is where the commentators have a lot of fun as well because there's a lot of proposals that have been put forward. And so we'll look at some of them. Uh, again, I'm going to keep the last option. I think we're going to look at five options. I, I agree with the last option, and I'll try to explain why I would take that. Um, at the same time, we'll just look at some of these other options just so you're aware of them. Option one, some people will say that the scroll represents the book of the new covenant. Okay. reason I think this is unlikely, however, doesn't have a lot of positives to this view is because the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 is one of mercy. Uh, it's, it's the setting of this scroll as we're going about to find out, is predominantly one of judgment. So it just seemed to be in contrast to the new covenant found in Jeremiah 31. If you want to look at that later, it's, it's just Jeremiah 31, 31. So it's just easy to kind of remember. But you'll see, that, that's really talking about blessing in the scroll that we're going to look at here um, in chapter 5 and then following into chapter 6, these seven seal judgments. It's, it's a scroll of judgment. In fact, it begins the series of three judgments that are going to come. So it just doesn't seem to fit that it's the new, uh, new covenant. Option two, some people will say it's a testament or a will assuring that the inheritance is reserved by God for the saints. Now, the inheritance is reserved by God for the saints. That's, that's true. But to say that this scroll is it, um, I would disagree with. But one of the things that, that's a positive for possibly accepting this option is that in John's day, a Roman will had to be sealed seven times to make it authentic. And so what they would say is, yeah, this is a, a will assuring the inheritance and, and it's like a Roman will because it's got seven seals on it. The negative to that is that the seals and the judgments that follow don't deal with the inheritance of the saint. When they start breaking open the seals, it has nothing to do with the saint's inheritance, but with the plagues of judgment to be heaped upon rebellious humanity. Okay, so it just, it potentially fits the description of the scroll. When Jesus starts busting these seals open, it's not, has nothing to do with inheritance. It's, it's all about judgment. So probably not the best option. Um, option three, um, some people will say the scroll is the Lamb's book of life. They'll say, oh, this is the Lamb's book of life. A positive for that is due to the writing on the inside and out, it implies a great number of potential names. So that's, that's kind of cool. You know, if it's the Lamb's book of life, that means a lot of people have gotten saved because uh, it's inside and out. But the negative, again, if this were the purpose in the book would be, uh, would divulge the identity of the redeemed. But as the seals are broken, uh, again, only tribulation is divulged. It doesn't even talk about saved people. It talks about judgments. Really, when we start looking at the sealed scroll, we have to, in our understanding of it, have to incorporate why is there judgment found? That's the, we've gotta, there's got to be an explanation for that in whatever uh, interpretation that we, we fall on here. Option four. Um, some people will say the scroll represents God's redemptive plan foreshadowed in the Old Testament and completed in the New Testament. Uh, again, one positive about it is it's going to provide for the prominence of the death of Christ in this chapter. Um, what you're going to see in chapter 5, and we'll read some of it, is every time they begin to sing a song or to cry out, they bring up the fact that the lamb was slain. When they talk about his death, they're... they're, they're they're just praising God for his death, his work on the cross. Additionally, it asserts God's sovereignty over a sinful world and so achieves the, the purpose of creation. The negative about it is that the opening of the seals does not relate to the past. Okay, we're not looking back when we open these seals. We're looking at things future, future from the time of the writing. Nor does this view relate itself to the wrathful contents of the revelation. And so these are some of the options that are considered. I feel the best option is, is option number five, and that is this, that the scroll represents Christ's title deed or contract deed to the world or to the earth. What do I mean by that? Well, if, when you own a house, you buy a house, you get, you get the title deed. It's, it's yours. That's your, your proof of ownership. 
why is Christ taking that title deed? Why is he the only worthy one? What does this mean? So, but a couple things. Why is this important? Well, this kind of contract was known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by Romans from the time of Nero on. Nero, 50, 50 AD, this, I think he died. I think he committed suicide in 68 AD. So, so right in that time frame, this contract was used. Here's what's interesting about it. The full contract would be written on the inner pages and sealed with seven seals. The picture I have up here behind, that's not probably the most accurate picture. It would look more like this, where there was a seal on the outside and then you would peel that off and roll it open and then there'd be another seal that you'd bust and then you'd peel that back and roll that open. There'd be another seal that you'd bust seven times. Okay, that's the description of this kind of title deed or contract deed that was used in Roman times. Then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside. And again, just kind of going with John's image here, we've got writing on the inside, writing on the outside. This seems to potentially fit what he was describing. Uh, We learned from history that all kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rent and lease agreements, release of slaves, contract bills, and bonds, according to historians. What's also interesting is this kind of contract was also known in the Hebrew world in relation to a title deed. And we go all the way back to Jeremiah. Remember, as he is predicting exile, he puts down a title deed on a piece of land. Yeah. 32, 10 through 15, he buys a field. Look at, uh, you can just listen along if you don't want to turn there. But Jeremiah 32, 10, and I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of uh, Messiah in the presence of Hanamel my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. And so you see that uh, even that concept of a purchase deed, a title deed with seals um, is even familiar in the Hebrew culture. So it's a title deed to the world. And, And so what does that mean? Well, it's a title deed to all creation. And why is this significant in terms of biblical history, trying to put this all together? Why, do we, why are we taking this position? Well, remember, creation was forfeited by Adam through the entrance of sin in Genesis 3. And it's reclaimed by Christ through his redeeming death. And that's how we kind of tie all of world history together. This also fits, as we look at chapters 4 and 5, it's going to fit the emphasis on creation in the song of Revelation 4.11, which we've read. And also the worship by all creation in Revelation chapter 5. In fact, go down to Revelation 5 verse 13, which says this, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And so you, you kind of see that this, is, this involves all of creation singing his praises. Additionally, I feel like this ties in with the truth that the scriptures teach that Satan is currently the God of this age, the ruler of this world, okay? In that sense, he's usurped the authority. In fact, we find that when Jesus is, is drawn out into the wilderness by the Spirit in Matthew 4, that Satan, Satan tempts him a couple ways. But one of the ways that he tempts him, remember what he says? I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus doesn't say, Psh, no, you can't. What are you, you're not, what are you talking about? You don't have that. He's, and he doesn't respond that way. So that the implication is that Satan has the right to do that. And part of it is, I, I believe he usurped this title deed, so to speak, at the fall. And so this scroll is, as Jesus is the one worthy because of redemption, the one, because he was the one who created everything, the only one worthy to take this earth back where the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. We're going to read in Revelation 11. And so this is why I think this is probably the best explanation of this scroll. Also, this scroll contains the counsels of God and judgment that will fall upon the earth. Now, this is very important because why does God begin to unleash judgments on the earth? Well, it finalizes the redemption of the world. This is what he uses to bring in the the kingdom reign of his son. This is what he's going to do to bring in the kingdom reign. And so jump ahead real quick to Revelation 11, 15. 
look at your chart, this is uh, following the sixth trumpet judgment. Okay, this is, so we've been through the, the seven seals. We've been through the six trumpets. We get to Revelation eleven fifteen. Um, then the seventh angel sounded. Here's the seventh trumpet, which releases the seven bowls, we'll see. And it says, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And you see that these judgments are instrumental into bringing about the, the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ. So by tempting Adam to sin, Satan usurped this world for a time, but the heir is coming to reclaim the world because the title deed is his. And that's what we learn in Revelation chapter 5. And so we get to read about that in 5, 5 through 7, where Jesus is described as the worthy one. Before we do that, let me just read a note. This is by Harry Ironside. I thought he, he said it well. He says, when God said who is worthy to open the book or open the, the scroll and to loose the seals thereof in, in chapter 5 verse 2, it was just another way of saying who is the rightful heir. And he says, who can say I have the title to break those seals, title to the claim that, that the world, it belongs to me. Who is worthy to take possession of that world and subject it to himself? And what we're going to see in 5, 5 through 7, that Jesus is the only one. He came and he took the scroll out of the right hand, representing power and authority of God the Father. C11 as Jesus is now revealing the future through opening the scroll and breaking the seals. Let's read 5, 5 through 7. He says, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Remember, John was upset that no one was found worthy. But he says, one of the elders uh, says to me, do not weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And then jump back to Revelation 1.1 again. This explains this, what we just read, that he came and took the scroll out of the right hand who sat on the throne. We saw in Revelation 1.1, interesting phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Okay, I think it's referencing what we're reading now in, in Revelation 5-7. And so the revelation here involves the contents of this scroll. Um, that's what we're seeing. Now Jesus, Jesus comes down, he grabs a scroll, and then the rest of the chapter, this spontaneous praise erupts. People, we, heaven goes nuts. It's awesome. They get real excited. Verses 9b through 10, we see that the content of this new song proclaims Jesus' worthiness to take the scroll and to open the seals. Let's read verse 8 uh, through 10. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for, for again, explaining why you're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In verse 10, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Why is Jesus worthy? Well, notice his worthiness is directly related to the fact that he was slain uh, because he was the redeemer. What Adam had forfeited, Christ was now qualified to reclaim the earth to set up his rule over it. Specifically, Jesus is stated to have redeemed the 24 elders, okay, representative of every tribe, nation, and tongue to God by his own blood. Again, this is why we felt this was a strong argument for the 24 elders as representative of the church. We want to have a couple of closing comments as we finish chapter 5 because chapter 6, we're going to move into the seal judgments, okay? We're going to start moving into some of those uh, seal judgments. And so a couple things that we want to see. The other thing that you want to do at this time is if you've got your other handout, uh, the third handout that you took tonight that we have not looked at yet, the title says the connection between worship and judgment in Revelation. We'll look at that in a second. Let's finish our notes. But we want to look at a couple of thoughts here as we go into the tribulation. We'll start that next week. And this is important to know. Worship precedes judgment. Worship precedes judgment. And it's just a reminder that when one has an accurate view of God and who he is, one is forced to recognize that when he judges, he has the right to judge. 
one is forced to acknowledge that what he does is good, right, and unable to be criticized or critique. This is critically important to remember as we begin to read the horrors of the Great Tribulation. And so we want to keep this thought in our mind. The second thing, God's position as creator-owner gives him the right to do what he chooses with his creation. Notice that the 24 elders praise God because he created all things. It's this truth that gives him the unchallenged ability to do what he chooses with his creation and when he chooses to to do it. And then the third thing we want to consider that in heaven, creatures recognize that even the good which they have been rewarded for are not the things they can take credit for. And so clearly the rewards or crowns that the believers receive at the judgment seat of Christ are only theirs because they depended upon the Lord. He produced his fruit through them. Thus he is the truly the only one worthy. So the connection between worship and judgment in the book of Revelation is astounding. It's worth observing. When one first reads the book, it is very natural to assume that the God of the Bible is vengeful and overly harsh in his judgments. However, there are at least two things that need to be considered that indicate otherwise. First, the Bible teaches that God is patient and has been patient with sinners because he desires people to change their mind and put their faith in Christ so that they might be saved. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is long-suffering, right? We see that. He desires all men to, to repent and come to the knowledge of him. So that's the first thing we want to consider. Second, and this is really applicable here in the book of Revelation. In heaven, the four living creatures, many angels, the 24 elders, and every other creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Notice you could underline that word, all praise the Lord. As he prepares to unleash the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. In addition... These groups also praise the Lord after he finishes unleashing the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. So arguably, when people have the most clarity, in other words, after death and in the afterlife, they see the justness of God's judgment and they worship him accordingly. And so what I've got there for the seal judgments, the worship before the seal judgments, uh, which we just read, you've got the seal judgments in Revelation 6, and then you're going to see worship after the seven seal judgments in Revelation 7, 9 through 12. Move into the trumpet judgments. You're going to see worship before the trumpet judgments, Revelation 7, 9 through 12. You're going to see the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9. And then you're going to see worship after the trumpet judgments in Revelation 11, 15 through 18. You move on to the bowl judgments. You've got worship before the bowl judgments, Revelation 15, 1 through 4. You've got the bowl judgments in chapters 15 and 16. And then you have worship after the bowl judgments, Revelation 19, 1 through 7. And so I want to keep that in mind, this connection between worship and judgment uh, as we begin to read through the horrors of the tribulation uh, starting next week. Well, let's pray. Lord, thanks. Just thanks for the study tonight. We, we just look at chapters four and five, especially, and we're just like, wow, just, just incredible. I uh, would love to, uh, love to just sit, sit in those chapters and just consider uh, what, what the Apostle John is writing about, what he's seeing, and the fact that one day we'll be there, we'll, we'll be involved in that scene and kind of with you, and just the fact that we're able to read about it and then see it. Um, in person one day. We just, uh, we just really are excited uh, to be a part of that. So Lord, just encourage us as we leave tonight. Uh, encourage us in the Lord Jesus. Just exalt him in our thinking as we go about our week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.